First of all, I'm a proponent of remote work too. I think it's the way to build a business. It's so much more efficient. And personally, I think that if companies start requiring people to go back to the office, they're really going to limit their talent pool and their access to a talent pool because people don't want to go back to the office all the time. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Mark Zuckerberg, people are more productive working at home than people would have expected. My guest today, Nicole Sahin, has built an incredible business that helps other companies expand their businesses globally, and it often helps them expand their remote footprints. She's the founder and CEO of Globalization Partners, an industry-leading global employer of record that eliminates the traditional HR, legal, and tax hurdles that companies face when building global teams. She's been named a top 100 female founder by Inc. and does extensive work with nonprofit organizations such as Water for People, Give Directly, and School the World. Today, we're going to talk about remote work, particularly to mark the launch of my new book on remote work, How to Thrive in the Virtual Workplace, which launches in North America today. Nicole, welcome. It's great to have you on the Elevate podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, Bob. So and we talked about this before, but how did you start your career? Oh, well, I started my career um, really as a traveler. And I think that any entrepreneur starts by doing what they love and what they're really intrigued by. And I was always intrigued by getting to know people from all over the world. And it ultimately turned into a business. I think I'm also an action-oriented person and I like to solve problems. And I never would have guessed that business was the means of, to an end for me. But, but here we are 20 years later. So you started as a traveler. What did you get paid to do? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there's that. I can't say I was focused on money, but I thought I would start as an anthropologist and I did an anthropology study in the remote highlands of uh, Guatemala, living with an wow. indigenous family. So at that time, paid travel felt like being paid, but yeah, not quite that. But I, I realized that, again, business is anthropology in action or applied anthropology when it's internationally focused Yeah, and uh, ultimately landed here. And that, and that led you to eventually go into HR, right? And you, I think you worked in Boston for a big uh, PEO, is that right? Okay. So basically, um, after doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that, I, okay. So I started out with my anthropology. I ended up yeah. starting a business in the Caribbean, uh, outsourcing yoga retreats for high-end hotels and, uh, realized that I am indeed an entrepreneur, but I didn't want to be in the yoga business and I didn't want to live in the Caribbean. I moved to California, got an MBA in international business and jumped on board with the man in a dream. The dream was to help companies set up their international operations all over the globe. So we provided consulting services to companies like Tesla and Harvard, like all, all the big high growth yeah. companies of that time. And basically every time they wanted to hire an employee in any country, we would go set up their branch office, deal with all the legal HR and tax issues on the ground for them. And after doing that for six years and setting up 100 companies in Europe, 100 companies in China, 100 companies in Brazil, one for each company that wanted to hire a person in another country. I thought if I could just set up one company that, that all of our customers could have access to, rather than setting up company after company in each country, that I would have a much more scalable business model. And that leads us to where we are today. And so that, that was your spark to launch Globalization Partners. Correct. 
So it's interesting because you are a little bit, you eat your own dog food, right? You help, help companies build global, you know, expand their teams globally, but at the same time, we're building a global company that was mostly remote. So as the pandemic ends as, and it opens up the opportunity, you know, we've talked about this over the years, like what, what were some of the challenges that, that companies see when they are both looking to, you know, hire anywhere, but both the logistical, but also like building the organization. Like what did you learn on how do you, how, on building a global organization? Totally. I mean, I think the first hurdle is often, like you said, the, the logistical challenges of figuring out how to run payroll, how to deal with legal issues, how to manage tax and HR. Since we have our own platform built in that regard, which we give our customers access to, that part was kind of out of the way for us. And I think that's the hardest part intellectually. But then there's the emotional part of trusting somebody that you're going to hire in a foreign country whom you've never met in person and knowing that they're going to carry the culture of your business forward or trusting that they will and kind of letting go of the reins, even though this person is probably training virtually and getting to know the organization virtually. That was hard for us, even for me, having had you know, 15 years experience running international businesses at that time. And you and I have seen companies, I think they tackle as they're expanding globally, they tend to err on too far of one side of the spectrum. So the first spectrum, and let's pretend it's a US centric company. So we're going to send a bunch of our US people to go set up an office in London or Brazil or otherwise, right? So no market knowledge, no local context, but we're really, we're worried about our culture and our DNA. So we're going to do that. I think the other extreme is we're going to find the right person locally, you know, who knows the market, understands all the context, but they're going to be really disconnected and not tied to the culture and they might not be a fit. And, and I, I, the middle ground is hard for people. What, what's your experience? Been? I, that's, I, that's what I've seen. I think companies, the two mistakes are both ends of that spectrum. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think the bigger disaster, like let's just get this off the table, is the first yeah. extreme. Yeah. So hiring U.S. employees and sending them around the globe and expecting them to be functional and high value in foreign countries is not a winning strategy. I, that's a disaster. Companies used to do that in like the 80s and, and 90s probably. Where, and that was the whole expat business model of, you know, expecting that your American employee could be successful anywhere. That doesn't work. Um, so. I think people have to get over the fear of thinking that's going to work. But then, like you say, there's the other extreme of just hiring, you know, one man in China and hoping that he or she's going to do well and without any training, without being integrated into the company. And, and that's also just improbable. So when you're launching a new country, you know, which you've yeah. had to do quickly, how do you get that in between? What is your process? Okay. So I think the process is, first of all, interview the same way that you would in the United States if you were doing it by video and ultimately trusting like, you know, I know when someone is passionate, high energy, seems like a self-starter, that type of profile, the, the type of person I want to work with. So when I meet someone I want to work with, I know that pretty, like there's a gut feeling there. And I've learned that you can usually rely on that by video too. And that's cross-culture. It's across everything. Yes, yeah. it really is. So that's the first thing to look for. The second thing I would say is if you're hiring your first person in a country, you need somebody who's a little bit more entrepreneurial than your average person, especially if that person's overseas. So in the US, we have a, our basic culture is to expect people to be pretty independent 
and expect them to just kind of go out guns blazing, get things done. A lot of cultures, that's not the baseline expectation for how people are successful at work. And so you need somebody who has that more of that inclination inherently than is normal for their culture. Okay. The third thing is I think to invest in training. And, and basically what we found is it comes down to digitized training programs where people can train themselves, understand what's going on, get to know people throughout the organization. So we have a whole, we call it GP University. The first two weeks that an employee is on board, we have a schedule of calls for him, that person um, to meet different people in the organization. We block off time on calendars with people. And then the, the actual training component of the business, besides like the software and everything, which is digitized learning, it's like having somebody who's literally going to sit side by side with that person from a video on a video basis. And that's what they're doing. Because what we found is people are not successful if no one has blocked off time to train them. When somebody's sitting in your office, you'll spend time training them because it's kind of socially awkward to just ignore that person. So you have to make, you have the employee, your, your trainers have to make the same commitment as if that person's sitting right next to them. Yeah. I, I wonder if you'll agree with me on this. I, I've always said, cause we've been fully distributed that we had to have a world-class training program. I think a lot of in-company, if you go to a great in-person company, like a really great one, top one, you probably don't hit your desk for three weeks. You know, you hit the customer service line, you go to the university, you go to the onboarding, like there really is training, but so many of the companies just depend on the fact that it's in person and they say, Oh, Nicole, you're starting today. Uh, we're going to have you follow around Sarah, right? Like that's just not, we're going to have you shadow Sarah. I think that covers a lot of crappy training programs. The fact that people are in person. And I've always said, we don't have the luxury of people showing up to their desk and having nothing to do. So we have mm -hmm. to choreograph this stuff all out for weeks. It sounds like you came to a similar solution. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Fast forward to the end of 2024 and think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. It's designed by real people for real conversations. I've tried Babbel. 
It's fun, it's interactive, and in just a few minutes a day, I could see that it was making a difference and helping my comprehension and retention. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com elevate. Get 55% off at babbel.com elevate, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash elevate. Rules and restrictions may apply. And, and how about cross-pollinization? How, how important is it that the U.S. team goes and meets with the Japanese team or the U.K. team or, or vice versa to have that, you know, culture? And, do, and I've debated people this. Do you think core values, are, you know, change? Are, they, are yours universal or are they, do they need to adapt a little bit and based on the culture? That's a good question. I'll take the first one first, which is, is there value <laughs> in people going here or there? Are you laughing because I'm organized? <laughs> That's a well, long just, You're taking the easier one. Uh, okay, it is a little easier. So the first one is, is, yeah, I think there's value in... So for example, what we do, you know, going backwards on my own initial advice of don't send the non-local over. We have a European woman who was in the United States, one of our top salespeople. She moved to Ireland for us to go set up and train our European sales team. Awesome move, you know, great for everybody. And she's done an amazing job. She's European culturally, that has to help. She already had EU citizenship, also helps um, that she had the legal right to work there. So it wasn't just sending an American over. And similarly, like I'd love to get somebody on the ground with our Singapore team to go spend some time and actually train them. In terms of people just bouncing around the globe to have side conversations, you know, I, we've survived without it through the pandemic, but I do miss the era when my executive team could go sit on the ground in India for a week and hear what's going on with people. And I think there's value in it, but I also think we did too much of it. You know, we were we were spending too much time on airplanes yeah, um, instead yeah. of on business. Okay. Second question. You want to rephrase that one? Second question. Out here. What? Oh, that was the core values. So that the was core the core values. Thank you so yeah. much. I, I, this is a debate I've had on whether are, are they universal or, you know, do you have to, do you have to adapt for cultures that are really different? Yeah, I wish I could say they're universal. And I think they are in a sense, it depends what your core values are and how you define them. So let's, let's break it down. Um, core values of everyone wants to be treated with dignity and humanity in their work, core value, not negotiable and doesn't change across cultures. We lead with positivity and leadership and coaching and training and with dignity when there's a problem is a core value that I'm not, you don't have to bend on that. But like as compared to a fear-based management style, you know, I think that's a core value that, that can be universal. But some things I think are, are, do change a little bit by culture. Feedback, very different in different cultures, right? Germans, Americans love direct feedback. Not yes. so much, not so much in, in other areas. Yeah, that's a good example. We do. Um, and, and also like there's a much more hierarchical style of, first of all, communication on behalf of the company, communication to the team, management in different parts of Asia than there is in the US, work style and, and self-starterness. So being a self-starter is like something Americans totally pride themselves on. Asian culture, a lot of times people expect you to tell them what to do more, you know, like how to do the job, what you want them to do, and they'll thrive, but you can't just be ambiguous about it. So people are looking for a little bit more direction. And I, I find that it helps it to have somebody who understands the culture a bit more. The other thing is really communication styles. 
which we're all speaking English. We're both speaking English right now, for example. But and you, I can speak English to all 450 of my employees. But like you said, one thing about feedback, very different by culture and just simple style by culture. So just to give a couple examples, I've trained myself to open up my emails with, hi, how are you? How's the family? Mention something about their kids, you know, and, and whatever I know about the employee. Or if it's an employee I haven't spoken to personally before, again, open up the starter email, whatever, a little bit about that individual and their role. But basically me just popping an email over to somebody, just, hey, can you send me that report or can you do this is inappropriate, both for my status as the CEO of the company and also just culturally. So I've heard of European team members, for example, being offended at Americans, very direct, like no chit chat at the beginning of the meeting. We're going to jump right into business. Do you have this for me? Can you present on that? And this like bop, 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 very fast conversation back and forth without any fun, without any socialization, without any care for the culture of the team at the outset of the meeting. That's one example. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. It, it is complicated. And one of the main things I wanted to talk to you about is, you know, we've you know, we've survived this pandemic or most of us uh, have survived it. And I mean, from a business standpoint of like the companies who thought they could never be remote, like it wasn't as bad as they thought. And now people are coming back and saying, all right, what are we going to do going forward? What's our plan? What's the opportunity? You know, I know you believe deeply in hiring globally. I see a lot of businesses, you and I have been doing this for a while. We'll talk later about the hub strategy that I think we both settled into for a lot of these reasons. But this this discussion is where someone is going to save thousands of dollars down the line or some headache because I'm seeing CEOs who are deciding to go remote and that's fine or otherwise. They're saying our employees can work from anywhere. And I am thinking, (laughs) don't do that. That is a disaster (laughs) waiting to happen. You don't understand what the implications of that mean. If you're Facebook, you may have the resources and the manpower to deal with that. If you're a 50-person company, you're going to find out probably the hard way in three to six months. So can, can you take us through maybe both like within the United States, you know, we have listeners all over the world, but like what someone who says people can work from anywhere, what are they going to run into when they realize what this means? Let's say this was a company previously that had 50 people in Massachusetts and one or two elsewhere. And now they're saying, well, hire anywhere. Okay. Well, I can't help it. I'm going to start with the Just my frank feedback of, (laughs) I don't want people working from everywhere. So with my own team, I've said, look, you can work from home, wherever home is and wherever you tell HR home is. Um, We are very fortunate to have jurisdiction everywhere already registered and know the employment laws everywhere. Right. So you, you are, you are the rare exception. I think you have to make a clear asterisk on that, that you, you're probably one of the few companies that are actually set up to do that. We are, we are already set up to do that. You know, we're like Coca-Cola in terms of our legal structure. It doesn't matter. You know, so, so that brings us to your second point. But first, back to the work from home. I don't really want people working from Tahiti on vacation. You know, I don't think that you can be as effective at your job if you're backpacking around Europe for a month. Like, so I'm just going to set the bar there. It might be, some companies might think that's okay. And they might be very flexible in their mindset or not need as much from their employees. But like, we have a fairly intense job. You know, we're a high growth company and I don't know. I just think there's a difference there. So now back to, I'm, I'm the CEO of a 50 person Massachusetts company. I've never had people work 
outside of Massachusetts yeah. before. What, what am I going to find out the hard way as I let? Okay, <laughs> now let's talk about the real issues. Yeah, that was the philosophical because I I think that ninety percent of companies figure this stuff out way after oh, the barn do. is the the horse is out of the barn. Okay, the horse is out of the barn. So where an employee is is the basis for which country state laws you have to follow. And you have to follow the laws in two ways. One, you have to be compliant as an employer in that jurisdiction. So if you're a Massachusetts company and your employee moves to California, whether or not they tell you they've moved to California of note, it's your responsibility as the employer to make sure you're following California employment law, make sure you have them on a California payroll, make sure you're withholding taxes in California, and probably the most important part, paying corporate income taxes in California. And they're probably going to want, now they're going to need a California health care plan potentially too, right? Yes, they're going to need a California health care plan and your non-compete agreement is probably invalid in California. So the employee's gotten a lot out of this whole situation. <laughs> so you could say, well, I don't really want to deal with that. And But basically the problem is, is that the, the liability falls back to the employer, both again, from a corporate perspective and from a legal perspective. And not minding your tax situation is, is really bad for business. So just to give you an example, in the state of Washington, it's like you have to pay 3% of your gross revenues. And they don't collect income tax on companies. They, they collect a percentage of revenue. I believe it's 3% of revenue. Well, if you can imagine 3% of your revenue that's attributable to the state of Washington, you have to mark up your customer invoices or account for that. You have to account for that because otherwise, what if you're on a markup? strategy. You know, you have to bill your customers the extra amount in order to be able to pay it in taxes. So if you haven't done that and Joe from Boston is living in Washington and then and then the Washington state authorities come knocking on your door, you've opened up a huge tax liability for your business without ever contemplating it. Okay, so now we multiply that times 50 employees who are now working anywhere and suddenly like you have a really complicated tax situation to figure out. And then one of your employees moves to London. And then what, yeah. what there? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So now we have bigger issues because before we were expecting all the, all those 50 employees that were, we assumed they were Americans and they had the legal right to work in all 50 states. So now the employee moves to London. First of all, as, as the employer, again, if the employee is working for you full-time and exclusively and they're your employee. They are not a contractor. That's a key. They're probably not a contractor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So um, yeah, first of all, I think one first question companies have to deal with is does the employee have the legal right to work in that jurisdiction? If not, then you know you have an employee illegally working overseas and in that country. Or if let's say the employee does have the legal right to work, then again, the employee's legal rights and the corporate laws applying to that employee all boil back to where is the employee living and working? So if he's living in London, then basically you've you've opened up a, a London company without declaring it to the government. And so you have to declare it to the government, set up a company, potentially set up an audit for that UK company, deal with the payroll, the finances, the taxes, run payroll in the UK, change to make sure all the employment law, the employees engaged under UK employment law. It's a mess. And then and then he says you know what? I want to try Spain, right? Four months later. So this is this is the problem is these discussions are not going on in advance. Wow. And yeah. th these are big capital outlays. And let's say you thought the he or she was worth the $20,000 to move to London, but there's no contract, right? There's nothing that says yeah. you're going to stay there for two years or you're going to move back. And then I have to undo all of it. And, 
again, I think people end up just making them contractors or doing what they do in the short term yeah. and, and you create a administrative nightmare for yourself. I think it's a nightmare too, honestly. Yeah. Because then just for avoidance doubt, because I often get the question, is there a pan-European company? No, there's not. <laughs> so now you have to set up your UK company with a branch office in Spain, which is going to take six to nine months. And given the track record of this employee, he might not be there anymore at the end of the four, by the time the company is set up or the branch is registered. In 2017, entrepreneur John Rampton was frustrated with the available calendar tools, which led him to create Calendar.com. Calendar.com allows all of your different calendars to come together in one place. It also has some great features that solve many of the common frustration of team calendars. Smart links with notifications ensure you never need to worry about double booking or no-shows. The Find a Time feature compares everyone's schedules at once, finding the optimum time to meet, no more emailing back and forth trying to find out when everyone is free. And you also get analytics that will give you reports that show how you and your team are spending your time, allowing you to be more efficient. If you're looking to make yourself or your team more efficient this year, head over to calendar.com now to start your 30-day free trial and see the difference for yourself. That's C-A-L-E-N-D-A-R.com. Can you, you shared a case study with me uh, for the book about a company that got in a lot of trouble on this, you know, without, without naming it. Yeah. I mean, one example, can you sort of share that story as an example, just to show how it, it almost derailed a, an IPO, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We have a lot of that. So I think a lot of high growth companies, you know, I mean, we all, we all start as small businesses because the best way to start a company is to start yeah. a company, yeah. not to worry about everything in the meantime. But basically, there's a lot of corners that get cut along the way. And one of those examples would be hiring people as contractors around the globe. And basically, we do a ton of work, which is, hey, we hired these people as contractors, or we put them on a US employment contract, but they're they're actually living and working in Spain or Germany or and we paid them via we paid them via PayPal, right? Like a lot and we of pay them by PayPal. Yeah, that's my Venmo's my favorite. But anyway, yeah, so basically then we have to go back and clean it up because if a company is trying to exit, it doesn't even have to be an IPO. It can be take on a round of investment. The investors look at it and they're like, wow, you know, like you have so much liability, tax liability that's not on the books. Another example would be, I mean, where do you protect the IP that these employees are building? That is like probably one of the core assets of the company. It's tied to the employment contracts. And the only way to enforce those IP agreements, um, non-compete agreements and such, are really through an employment contract. If you don't have an employment contract or it's not a legally valid employment contract, these companies might not own their IP. So oftentimes we go back and we're doing a cleanup job with these employees. And what that looks like is the employees know they have leverage because Basically, the company's trying to exit, they're the salespeople, the engineers who built the business and all of these things. Oftentimes, they can go back and get these employees to sign paperwork retroactively, but they could also call the tax authorities in these countries. Um, they could quit and call tax authorities and call, you know, like basically cause a lot of trouble. And especially, I think a lot of times in the US, we, we are used to having... Um, I think it's a lax employment law system, especially compared to Europe. I was going to say outside of California, it's it's not that bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so in Europe, it's much more culturally normal for, it's almost a game, you know, that the employees know they have the upper hand. And instead of them being afraid to use it or feel ashamed to leverage things with their employer, 
it's almost a point of pride. You know, it's a game a little bit. And it, it comes from the it comes from this, you know, more more socialism. And, you know, they fought really hard for employment rights over the years. And that's part of what they do. They're proud of that as a as a culture. And so what would you recommend if you're coaching the, the leaders of a company instead of saying you can work from anywhere? How would you they want to embrace flexible work? How would you suggest they put parameters around that? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'm a proponent of remote work too. I think it's the way to build a business. It's so much more efficient. And personally, I think that if companies start requiring people to go back to the office, they're really going to limit their talent pool and their access to a talent pool because people don't want to go back to the office all the time. Mark Cuban's been saying this with relation to cryptocurrency, but he's been saying supply and demand are undefeated. And I keep thinking that's the same thing. Every time I hear a CEO like David Solomon say the work is an aberration or the WeWork we CEO say, you know, only only engaged employees come into the office, I, that, equi- <laughs> that just keeps coming into my head. Like, look, you can take this stance, but there's an increased demand out there for flexibility. And, and whether it's remote or not, I think flexibility, and there's a lot of companies that are willing to offer it. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay. So what's my recommendation? My recommendation is I I like the work from home policy because I'm relying, I am relying in part on my employees to be honest about where they're living and working, you know, based on our work from home policy and to tell us now, basically what we've also said is we don't care that much. Home can be loosely defined. Home can be your parents' home, home can be your, your summer home, whatever. Um, and we're not trying to restrict people so much. It's again, the, somebody working from an RV going on tour of the national parks is what I'd like to avoid. And we need to know the jurisdiction. So the other thing is, is that we do have, and we've told our employees, we do have tracking in our computer software to see where people are, you know, logging into the VPN or like, where are they using their computer? So that basically we know kind of where they are and we don't, we don't keep track of it daily, but we run exception reports. So if we notice somebody's been, let's say they're registered to be working in Massachusetts, they're on our Massachusetts payroll, but they've been in London for a month, that, that our system's going to flag that. Because you, you, you've got to tell these states and the IRS and stuff at the end of the year where people worked and who you owe money to, right? Yes, exactly. Like, yeah. yeah. And, and, um, and I think we do trust our employees, but it's also a trust but verify because that's the responsible way to run run any business. And I think our employees get it because we're, we're flexible while being reasonable. Okay. So one thing is knowing where your employees are. So I guess our, our policy is that people can work from home and we need them to let us know if they change their address or if they're going to be out of their home location for more than about two weeks. We'd like to know, and they can run it by HR if they're not sure, you know, if, if they're doing something that's going to flag a problem. So we have said no to people working from vacation. We, we kind of believe that vacation is there. <laughs> early vacation. Then. Yeah. 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 So, but then on the flip side, somebody says, Hey, I want to be at my Cape house and work from there. You know, I totally understand that. Yeah. I think we can set that up for being functional. Hi everyone. If you're not a subscriber to Harvard business review, you're missing out on a wealth of leadership content widely acknowledged as the leader in business leadership information. Harvard business review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their incredible podcasts. Premium subscribers can also access a selection of Harvard Business School real-world case studies and scenarios that provide business leaders with the learnings from how business leaders manage their business, their team, and themselves. 
When I need a source or data that I can trust for one of my articles, HBR is my go-to. Just this week, I referenced one of their articles about the efficacy of required diversity training, which had the most data behind it by far. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free, after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at just $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. With everyone fighting for attention these days, how can you get your business to stand out and connect with customers? It's easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media postings, and even event management. You'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track your growth. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence, knowing that your emails are actually reaching your customers, thanks to their best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. Constant Contact was actually the first email marketing platform I ever used almost 20 years ago, and it's a testament to the product's quality that it's still the standard for email marketing today. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. And the other downside to having people so spread out is, look, people want to work remotely. They want flexible work, but they want to meet their colleagues. They want to go into places. They want to socialize. And having no areas of concentration are difficult for you. You want to go see your employees. You can't go to 400 places. So I know you've sort of embraced this hub strategy as we have too. For us, it was more practical because we don't we don't have the infrastructure <laughs> that you have. So we actually wanted to say, here are our approved regions and you can work yes. around the city. You can be around the city. That gives us, we can interview, we can have socialization, we can go pull the teams together, but that social side too. So I, I know you've embraced this strategy, I think as well. Right, exactly. So yeah, I mean, so we've used a hub strategy where we try to hire. So for example, we have a big team in Ireland, you know, centered out of one office. They actually do want an office. I mean, and it's enough people that they want to go in, you know, a day or two a week and it makes sense. For yeah, they're not there every day. Yeah. Yeah. Or um, we, we hire a lot of people in Boston. We hire a lot of people in San Diego. Uh, we're opening a big Poland office. We're basically going where the talent is. The other thing is, is I think, you know, that way you're taking advantage of network. You know, everybody knows those amazing people that they've worked with at prior companies and being able to pull more people in locally is valuable. Yeah. But like you said, being able to travel to Ireland now and meet, you know, a good chunk of my team at once is really, there's a lot of potential. We actually have it set up like within two weeks, we touch the whole company. We do a series of hub meetings. People who aren't in a hub will fly in and we can actually connect to the whole company. If we had people anywhere, uh, we couldn't do that. And it'd be really hard to have those events and stuff that people that people enjoy. But yeah, so it's funny. It's similar. It's like they might be in a city, but not working together every day. However, that leaves a lot of opportunities to connect and, and do stuff together. Yeah, exactly. Will you explain, we actually, I know we didn't get to it. Will you explain 
how the platform that you built solves this problem for companies that are interested in that model? Yeah. So basically, um, if one of our customers has an employee who wants to move to Spain, wants to live in Spain, the employee has a legal right to work in Spain or is hiring people in London or Singapore or Brazil or really anywhere, then we put their candidates on our payroll in that country. So legally, we're the employer of record. But for all intents and purposes, the customer is benefiting from that individual's work. And um, it's a it's fully automated platform. So from, from the user experience, from the customer side, it looks like they're going into our software, choosing what benefits they want to offer the employee in that country, what are the negotiating components of the employment contract, which, I, which clauses they want to drop into the employment contract, running payroll through the software. But of course, there's people as well. So anytime yeah. our customers want to talk to somebody or they have an HR issue, our HR team is also on standby to help. So the, the way it helps is it eliminates the need for companies to set up their own payroll in all these countries, figure out all the benefits, figure out all the legal issues, worrying about the, the tax situation, because our companies are already registered and doing business in those countries. So it's, it's kind of like um, subsidiary as a service. Yeah. And, and look, because the, there's this disconnect now, there's now this great opportunity to be able to hire people anywhere, but it's not... <laughs> It's not easily, it's not easily done. And, and this model has existed in the U.S. for a while. I think called sort of the PEO yeah. model, but it really hasn't existed globally until the last few years, right? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. It it varies a little bit. The U.S. PEO model is co-employment, yeah. so companies still have to manage their corporate taxes on the ground in all of those countries. But the uh, international model is we're one hundred percent the employer of record which kind of keeps the headquarters company out of the fray of having to navigate that. Right. So it's your job to know the French employment laws and the Brazilian employment laws and work with a company on that. And then so that they don't have to figure that out. Exactly. Just part of the turnkey outsource, whatever you don't is not core to your business model. Right. So you don't think we're going back to 2019. What, What do you think the next five to 10 years are going to look like, and particularly for companies who say we're going fully remote and don't support it in the way that other companies do, or we're going to make everyone come back. Or I'm also like, I'm actually most worried about hybrid. I think that hybrid as a strategy that is supported can make a lot of sense. I think Mm -hmm. hybrid in the absence of making a decision and not having clear rules about when do you have to come in and where do you have to live? And otherwise, I think that could get really messy really quickly. I envision like, you don't have to come in, but people seeing that, oh, people coming in and meeting with a boss every day are getting the best uh, assignments. So, I mean, we're down to these three choices. What, what, what do you think the next five, 10 years are gonna look like? And, and do people need to put their stake in the ground now or do they have some time? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> in terms of putting the stake in the ground, I think the beginning of the year was the last point, they had, the last opportunity they had to at least define you know, at least we need to know where you're living and working. I think for last year, for 2020, you know, the tax authorities kind of turned a blind eye. Oh, so-and-so was living in California, but on payroll in New Hampshire, whatever. I don't think they had time to react to that either. But on a go-forward basis, countries want the taxes they're owed and the companies are how they collect it, whether through payroll or from a corporate tax perspective. So I think January was kind of the, the deadline to figure out, like, we need to be compliant with the laws now and figure out how to do things going forward. Okay. Now in terms of what's it going to look like for the next five or 10 years, 
I would expect that companies that insist everybody come into the office are going to have a hard time with the five days a week in the office. There might be a few people like I know, I know like Goldman and like the investment banks, like they think everybody wants to go back and some really big companies. But one of the investment bank, I think like one of the other banks will say, well, you don't have to come here five days a week. Right. And then exactly. I think it'll be really interesting. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think that they're going to get backlash on, on the 100% in the office policies and, and like have to adjust. They're not going to, nobody wants to live like that anymore. Well, few people want to live like that anymore. So like you said, they'll deal with the competitive labor market. Okay, then we have the 100% remote. Um, I think it's great for my industry because those are the companies that are coming in droves. Like when they're when they're literally like, you want to hire anyone anywhere, I think it's a great talent strategy. Yeah. I think you have to get it right. And our model is really good for that. And I would say also being careful which companies you partner with if you do do that is really critical because... You're basically outsourcing your legal infrastructure, your tax infrastructure, and your HR platform. So buyer beware. And the cultural piece of that, right? I mean, you got to do that really well to keep so you don't have a company that looks like a company of independent contractors, but feels like a, a cohesive organization. I couldn't agree with you more. And I and you know, companies that really are leading with that kind of policy, they care a lot about retaining their employees because. It's hard to hire people and retain them and train them. It's probably the most critical thing. Okay. And then, so that's the anyone, anywhere. But I agree, there's going to be a few big tax cases that come up that make a lot of noise and a lot of news or IPOs fall apart or whatever that just make people realize like you can't fly under the radar. And then, yeah, I think, I think ultimately we'll end up in a hybrid model. Let's just land there. That's just reality. You have some experience with this, but what do what does the workspace look like in a hybrid model? Is it is it designed to be used in a different way um, than you know workspace, or is it designed for specific types of uses? I have a feeling in the future, a lot of workspace will look like WeWork, but with individual memberships, or yeah, like individual type memberships, or a company by so many seats that can be used and on a daily basis with a lot more conference space as compared to just individual office space. Yeah. I think that's going to be a great, great turnaround for companies like that. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help define the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Any candidate who's looking for a job is going to be on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals, and many like myself use it every day, which also makes it the best place to hire. LinkedIn gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. That's why 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free today at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, I mean, the irony is that you know, before this, you know, the open office space, just the open space was actually totally debunked as not productive. Like it's actually, mm. it's so distracting that people are wearing headphones and, and all that stuff. So, but there are definitely things, there are certain meetings, their collaboration. I'm hearing the same thing as you're saying, like workspaces getting together, offsites, 
executive offsite, terrible, remote, like painful. Yeah, they are. <laughs> and yeah. horrible. Um, so yeah, having your desk in a cubby, like again, you can do that at home, but having a big conference room, a white space, you know, something for training, uh, using much more of the space for group collaboration mm-hmm. when you want to collaborate, not... I keep going back to, you know, that having 24 individuals sitting at a long table, all doing their own work, yeah, you know, is not those, if they're not collaborating, they might as well not be at the same table because it's just, it is distracting. Yeah. And it's super inefficient. I mean, even just the amount of time that you spend, you know, in traffic and buzzing back and forth saves a lot of time. People are more comfortable. I've always been a proponent of like work when you're feeling the vibe and like when you're really engaged, but when you're dragging through things and trying to make it to 5 PM because your boss is watching, like that's not productive time anyway. I'd rather somebody go home and pick it back up after their kid falls asleep if they're distracted, you know? Yeah. All right. Last question. So you've been doing this for a while. You've seen a lot of companies, uh, you know, go down this path. What's, what's the sort of mistake that you've made that you've learned the most of in, in building a global and remote organization? Yep. I would say not doing it faster is like really just not hiring more people in more locations faster. Anything I've ever done, the only regret I have is not not moving faster because in the end, the talent that you're able to hire is extraordinary. Having locals on the ground to problem solve with your customers, with your employees around the globe is, is much healthier, easier, and less stressful for everyone. Um, there's a lot of cost benefits of hiring everywhere. There's a lot of uh, revenue benefits of hiring everywhere. And so I just think when you tap into talent and you have a whole world at your fingertips, the opportunity is so unbelievably exciting. And so I guess just do it instead of worrying too much about it. But like you said, do it well. I think is also important. All right. Well, Nicole, where can people learn more about you and your and your company? Yep. I'm Nicole Sahin. I'm the CEO and founder of Globalization Partners. And they can find us on our website, which is globalization-partners.com. And you've got a book coming out too. So do you have a site for that set up yet? Or? Uh, we do not yet. The book is Global Talent Unleashed. I don't know if we have the website set up yet, but if they go to the company webpage, then and I'm sure we'll have a link. Then, then they'll be able to find it. Yeah. All right, Nicole, thank you for uh, sharing your stories with us today. I, I, I think you, for those executives and leaders that are thinking about this and listening, I, I hopefully we've saved a lot of <laughs> anguish and, and future problems and, and we'll, we'll have you back to talk more when the book's out. Thanks so much. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for the opportunity. All right, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Nicole and her work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. Also check out How to Thrive in the Remote Workplace, which is available in ebook until June 6th for just 99 cents in the US. If you enjoyed today's episode or are a listener of the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate if you could leave a review as it helps new users discover the show. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. Hello, Elevate Podcast listeners. I wanted to let you know about my friend Darius and his amazing show, The Greatness Machine. The Greatness Machine is one of the top-ranked educational and business podcasts in the country, recently ranking top five in the entrepreneurial category on iTunes. Here's why I love Darius and The Greatness Machine. It really comes down to a few things. 
The Greatness Machine has amazing guests from the likes of sports icon Gabby Reese, worldwide news sensation Amanda Knox, FBI hostage negotiator Chris Voss, and Tiny Habits expert and author BJ Fogg, to NHL Hall of Famer Chris Pronger, and hundreds more. Darius keeps it real. I always learn something new, and I have a few laughs. And he always also asks great questions and is a really entertaining and engaging host. The Greatness Machine is where you get to be a fly on the wall and listen to Darius and his amazing group of guests talk about how they got to where they are today and hear stories of people who have lived their passions to create greatness in the world and doing so despite the odds. So if you want to be entertained while learning from some of the greatest and most accomplished people in the world, this is definitely a show for you to check out. Subscribe to The Greatness Machine today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.